Why do you have? We would be honored if you would join us. Hey, Star Wars fans from all around the galaxy. It's Kyle here, bringing you the most epic audio show on the air, Star Wars Audio Archives. Exciting news. We're rolling into a fresh season, and trust me, it's going to be epic because we're diving deep into the Old Republic's annihilation. And this isn't just any story. It's Star Wars at its core. Picture this, a massive showdown between the Sith Empire and the Republic. So buckle up, Star Wars enthusiasts. Let's blast into the first part of Season 10 and explore the wonders of Annihilation. Are you ready? Then let's do this. The air inside the cave was cool, but a thin sheen of perspiration coated Satil Shan's skin. The hard, uneven stone dug into her back and shoulders through the blanket she lay on. She shifted and twisted to escape the discomfort. The dim light of glow sticks casting the shadow of her writhing limbs into a grotesque dance on the far wall. Try to remain still, Satil. Master Nagani Zhou, the mentor who had brought her to the sanctuary of this cave, spoke softly. But his deep voice still resonated in the close confines of their hidden refuge. Outside, the galaxy was engulfed by war. The Sith, ancient enemies of the Jedi Order, long thought extinct, had returned to threaten the existence of the Republic that had stood for thousands of standard years. Satil Shan had seen the horrors of this war firsthand, battling with her fellow Jedi alongside the soldiers of the Republic against the enemy hordes. She had seen worlds burn. She had seen friends die. She had suffered more than she ever imagined she could and survived. Yet the pain she experienced now was something entirely different. There is no motion. There is peace. The mantra of the Jedi helped her focus, and she closed her eyes as she tried to draw on the Force to calm herself. But her body refused to obey her mind. And instead of a slow pattern of inhale, exhale, her breath continued to come in ragged, rapid gasps. The masters at the Jedi Academy had never prepared her for this. How could they? Satil, can you hear me? Are you okay? Her eyes snapped open in response to Nagani Zhou's voice. Gritting her teeth while another wave of agony washed over her, she could only nod in reply. Her fingers clenching his hand as she tried to draw the strength to sustain herself through this ordeal. We're almost done, Satil. Just one more push. The final contraction felt like it was ripping her apart. But she followed her master's instructions and pushed despite the pain. Satil screamed. And then suddenly, the pain was gone. An instant later, the loud cries of a child, her child, filled the cave. It's a boy, Satil, Master Zhou said as he cut the umbilical. You have a son. Satil had known the child she carried was male for months. She had felt him through the Force as his life grew stronger within her. But hearing the words spoken aloud somehow made this all feel more real. She had brought life into a galaxy overwhelmed with death. Here, Satil, Master Zhou whispered holding the infant out to her. Exhausted, she struggled to find enough strength to reach out with her weary arms. Nagani had wrapped the babe in a swaddling blanket, warm and enveloped as he had been in the womb. He was no longer crying. Pulling the child close to her chest, she couldn't help but wonder what destiny the Force had chosen for her son. She had no doubt his path would be a difficult one, for in these dark times no path was easy. What role would he play in the fate of the galaxy? She knew her own role well enough. Satil Shan, hero of the Republic, paragon of the Jedi Order, strong in the Force. She was a champion of the light, a symbol, an icon. The rank and file saw her as the embodiment of everything the Jedi and the Republic stood for. And that was why she had been forced to hide her pregnancy. For the first months, it had been simple. The loose-fitting Jedi robes had easily covered the swelling of her belly. But in the later months, a more elaborate ruse was necessary. She couldn't have done it without Master Zhou's help. 
when her condition became impossible to conceal and she had been forced to go into hiding, he had told the Jedi Council and the leaders of the Republic military that he had sent Satil on a vital mission, something he could not speak of for fear of endangering her life. Given Master Zhou's impeccable reputation, none had questioned him. Now, however, the mission was over. It was time for her to return. The Republic had fought too long without their champion. The Sith Empire's relentless advance had gone too far. She could no longer ignore the Republic's need. Are you sure about this, Satil? You don't want to reconsider? Satil looked down at the baby resting so peacefully in her arms and realized she would treasure this moment for the rest of her life. Whenever she was scared or alone or consumed by grief, she could draw on the memory of the first time she held her son. In the early stages of her pregnancy, she'd struggled against her maternal feelings as she'd felt the life growing inside her. She had tried to rationalize her protective instincts as nothing more than a biological imperative, an evolutionary mechanism to ensure the propagation of the species. But as the weeks and months passed, she realized her love for her unborn child was more than just biology and hormones. The emotional bond was real, and her desire to do anything, take any risk, or commit any act to protect her son was almost overwhelming. She would do everything in her power to protect him, even terrible, violent things. She would put his needs above all others, even if it meant an entire planet must suffer to spare him pain. Given her position and power, this was unacceptable. You promised you would take him, Satil said softly, gazing down into the child's wide, wondering eyes. I will, Nagani assured her. If that's still what you want. What I want has nothing to do with it, she muttered as she reluctantly handed the child back to her master. For the sake of the galaxy, this is what must be. As he took the child from her arms, the moment of greatest joy she would ever know ended. The child began to whimper. Sonagani stood up and began to cross quickly back and forth across the cave's uneven floor. The movement seemed to settle the child, much to Satil's relief. And you're sure you don't want to tell the father? Her master asked as he paced. No. He's a good man, but there is darkness in him. Nagani nodded, accepting her decision. What's his name? He asked. Satil was momentarily taken aback. He had never asked her the father's name before, and she had never offered it. Then she realized he was talking about the baby. You are going to raise him, she said with a shake of her head. You should choose his name. The Jedi Master stopped pacing and fixed her with a glare she remembered from her days as a Padawan. You're his mother. His name should come from you. Satil turned her head to the side and closed her eyes as exhaustion washed over her. Theron, she murmured. His name is Theron. Theron Sham walked quickly through the packed streets of Nar Shaddaa's promenade. His unassuming features, pale skin, brown hair, brown eyes, average build, allowed him to blend easily into the crowd. The cybernetic implants visible around his left eye and right ear were his most distinguishing features, but he wasn't the only one sporting them on Nar Shaddaa, and they typically didn't draw unwanted attention. The hut-controlled moon was a landscape of unfettered urban sprawl, marked by towering sky towers crammed too close together and gaudy, glowing billboards that dominated the horizon as far as the eye could see in every direction. Sometimes called Little Coruscant, it was hard to accept Nar Shaddaa as a true homage to the Republic capital world. In Theron's eyes, it was more akin to a grotesque parody. Coruscant had been designed with an eye to aesthetics, there was a pleasing flow to the cityscape and a consistent and complementary style to the architecture. The city was carefully divided into various districts, making it easy to navigate. The pedestrian walks were crowded but clean. 
the endless stream of airspeeders overhead stayed within the designated traffic lanes. On Coruscant, there was an unmistakable sense of order and purpose. At times, Theron found it positively stifling. Here on the Smuggler's Moon, however, it was a glorious free-for-all. Run-down residential buildings were scattered haphazardly among seedy-looking commercial structures. Factories abutted restaurants and clubs, with no regard for the toxic clouds of filth spilling out over the patrons. With no traffic rules in force, airspeeders and swoop bikes darted and dived in seemingly random directions. Sometimes flying so low, the pedestrians ducked and covered their heads. As Theron turned a corner, he realized someone was following him. He hadn't actually seen anyone on his tail, but he could sense it. He could feel eyes watching him, scoping him out, measuring him as a target. Master Nagani Zhou, the Jedi who'd raised him, would probably have claimed Theron's awareness came through the Force. But despite coming from a long line of famous Jedi, Theron wasn't one of the Order. In fact, he had no special connection to the Force at all. What he did have was a decade's worth of experience working for Republic Strategic Information Service. He'd been trained to notice minute details, to be hyper-aware of his surroundings at all times. And even though his conscious mind was distracted by the details of his coming mission, his subconscious one had instinctively picked up on something that had triggered alarms in his head. He knew better than to ignore them. Careful not to break stride, turn his head, or do anything else that might tip off his pursuer, Theron used his peripheral vision to scan the area. At street level, everything was a chaotic mishmash of bright, flashing colors. A constant assault from an army of pink, purple, green, and blue signs and billboards provided perfect camouflage for whoever might be following him. Fortunately, the intensity of the inescapable neon was muted by the layer of grime that clung to every surface, a reminder of the unchecked pollution in the atmosphere that would eventually transform Narshada into an uninhabitable wasteland. It wasn't easy to pick someone who looked suspicious out from the crowd. The population of the Smuggler's Moon was as varied, unpredictable, and seedy as the surroundings. In the years since the signing of the Treaty of Coruscant, the Huts had remained staunchly neutral in the ongoing Cold War between the Republic and the Sith Empire, making Nar Shadda a common gathering place for criminal elements from all corners of the galaxy. Black Sun slavers, Rhodian pickpockets, Twi'lek hustlers... Chevin stim dealers. Any and all illicit activities were tolerated on Nar Shaddaa, provided the huts got their cut. Still, there were those too greedy or stupid to cut the huts in on their action. When that happened, there were consequences. Things got messy. Is that what this is about? Theron wondered. Is Morbo on to me? Did he send someone to take me out? He passed by the statue of Karaga the Unyielding that dominated the promenade. Though he'd been to Nar Shaddaa many times, he couldn't help but pause for a second and shake his head in disbelief. A 30-meter-tall hut made of solid gold was too ostentatious to ignore. Shaking his head also gave him a chance to quickly glance from side to side to catch a glimpse of someone darting into a doorway off to his left. He didn't get a good look at whoever it was but the sudden movement was unnatural enough to stand out. Someone working alone. Could be a mugger or a trained assassin. Theron was on a tight schedule. It was time to force the action. He turned down a narrow side street, leaving the worst of the crowds and the relative safety they provided behind. Off the main thoroughfare, there were fewer neon lights and more shadowy corners. If his tail was going to try something... This was the perfect place to make a move. A slight buzzing of the cybernetic implant in his right ear alerted him to an incoming transmission. There was only one person who knew his private frequency. Theron had to take the call. Accept incoming, he whispered. Louder, he said. Director. Theron. The head of strategic information service, as he so often did, sounded annoyed. I'm on vacation, Theron replied. I put in for some R&R, remember? Theron realized the director's call could work to his advantage. 
Whoever was following him would think he was distracted, vulnerable. All he had to do was pretend to be oblivious while listening for his stalker to creep up close, then suddenly turn the tables. Vacation, huh? The director grumbled in his ear as Theron continued farther into the deserted alley. That's funny, because I have a report that one of our field agents has been spotted snooping around on Nar Shaddaa. Are you keeping tabs on me? What are you doing on Nar Shaddaa? The director demanded. Maybe I just like the climate. Smog clouds and acid rain? Not likely. You're up to something. Well, right now I'm about to be ambushed in a dark alley, Theron thought. Out loud, he said. I'm taking care of some personal business. What's Tepeth mixed up in now? Even though he couldn't see the man on the other end of the call, Theron could picture his boss rubbing his temples in exasperation. Tepeth's not a bad kid, Theron insisted. She just tends to fall in with the wrong crowd. Guess that explains how she ended up working with you. Theron had stopped walking and was standing with one hand up to the cyberlink in his ear. Staring straight ahead. Might as well be wearing a sign that says, Come and get me. Time to make your move, whoever you are. Nagani Joe saw something special in her, Theron said to the director. I know Master Joe raised you, but by the time he met Tefeth, he was uh, troubled. You almost said crazy, didn't you? She has key underworld contacts, and she knows how to handle herself in a tough spot. We might need a favor from her someday. I'm just looking out for a potential asset. What makes you think she'd ever help us? Didn't Tepeth say she'd kill you if she ever saw you again? Then I'll make sure she doesn't see me. I hate to do this, Theron. But I'm ordering you to pull out of Narshadar. It's for your own good. Theron felt the unmistakable shape of a vibroblade's tip pressing up against his back and a deep voice growled. Move, and you're dead. In his other ear. You worry too much, Theron told the director, keeping his voice light. Everything's under control. In a whisper, he added, disconnect. And the comm link in his ear shut down. Get your hands up, his unseen assailant snarled. Theron slowly raised his arms in the air silently cursing himself for letting his assailant get so close. Never even heard him coming. Was I really that sloppy, or is he that good? Lose the peace. The words were in basic, but the voice was definitely not human. Too deep, too rumbling. The speaker was large, but without turning around, there was no way for Theron to pin down what species he was dealing with. The comm link in his ear buzzed again, but this time, Theron ignored the director's call. He clicked his teeth together twice, temporarily shutting the cybernetics off so he could focus on getting out of the alley alive. I said, lose the peace. The order was accentuated by a jabbing of the blade against Theron's back. Reaching down slowly, Theron slid his blaster pistol from the holster on his hip and let it drop to the ground. He briefly considered making a move, there were a dozen ways he could try to surprise and disarm his opponent. But without knowing exactly who or what he was facing, it was too risky. Patience. Analyze the situation. Wait for your chance. Those are some fancy wrist cards you got. Maybe have a poison dart or pinpoint blaster built in, right? Lose them. Any hope Theron had of catching his assailant by surprise with the weapons in his customized bracers vanished as he unclipped the metal bands from his forearms and let them fall at his feet. The fact that his assailant had marked the bracers as potential weapons also meant this wasn't some run-of-the-mill mugger. An Imperial operative would probably recognize the bracers, but it didn't make sense for any of them to be targeting Theron on a hut-controlled world. Especially now that Imperial intelligence had been officially disbanded. That left only one other likely and unsettling option. A bounty hunter or assassin working for Morbo the Hut. Now turn around, real slow. 
The pressure of the blade eased as the ambusher took a step back. Theron turned to see a violet-skinned hook towering over him. His heavy-set torso and thick, muscular limbs seeming to fill the entire width of the narrow alley. His frog-like features were set in a grim scowl, his eyes fixed intently on his victim. He was pretty sure the hook didn't have any backup. He would have noticed if there was more than one person following him. But even if he was acting alone, Theron was no match for the massive brute's raw muscle. Under normal conditions, he could make up what he lacked in strength with speed. But in the tight confines of the narrow alley, avoiding the deadly vibroblade might be difficult, especially if the hook was trained in close-quarters fighting. Given his choice of weapon, Theron had to assume he was facing a capable and deadly opponent. What's your interest in mobile? I have no idea what you're talking about, Theron said, his earlier hypothesis about his ambusher working for the hut seemingly confirmed. I've seen you scoping out Morbo's place for the past three days. Lie to me again, and I won't ask nicely next time. He waved the vibroblade back and forth for emphasis. The threat didn't bother Theron nearly as much as the realization that he'd been made during his recon trips to Morbo's club. Never saw you at Morbo's. Didn't think anybody saw me either. I've been trained to know what to look for. Trained? Theron wondered. By whom? Imperial intelligence? As if echoing his own thoughts, the hook asked, Who are you working for? Theron wasn't about to reveal his connection to SIS, and he suspected another evasive answer would be met with violence. Take the shot! Theron shouted, as if calling out to an unseen accomplice. The hook's head turned just a fraction as he reacted to Theron's bluff. Seizing on the distraction, Theron lashed out with a quick kick to the hook's midsection. The impact caused no real damage, but it momentarily knocked the big alien off balance, giving Theron more room to operate. He was already backpedaling in anticipation of the counterattack. Even so, he barely avoided the expected lunge of his opponent. As he feared, the hook wasn't just some clumsy brawler. He was quicker than he seemed. As the hook moved in, Theron tried to disarm him with a wrist lock, reaching out for the hand that held the blade. The hook countered by twisting his body and throwing his opposite shoulder into Theron, sending him stumbling back. Unable to set his feet, Theron was forced on the defensive. The alley was too narrow to dodge from side to side, so his only option was full-scale retreat. Backpedaling rapidly as the hook charged forward, the blade slicing and stabbing the empty air centimeters from Theron's chest. Theron suddenly stopped short and dropped to the ground, rolling into the thick legs of his advancing foe. The move caught the hoop by surprise. He tripped over Theron and tumbled to the ground, the fall knocking the vibroblade from his grasp. One of the hook's knobby knees caught Theron in the chin as he fell over him, splitting his lip and making him see stars. Woozy, Theron ignored the pain and leapt to his feet. And with his first step, he staggered sideways into the side of the alley before crashing back down to the ground. A massive hand closed around his ankle as the still-prone hook tried to drag Theron close enough to finish him off. Theron lashed out with his free leg, smashing his foot twice into the hook's corpulent face. The vice-like grip slipped just enough for Theron to free himself with a twisting roll, and he scrambled on hands and knees toward where his blaster and bracers lay on the ground. The hook struggled back to his feet, but by the time he was upright, Theron had seized one of the bracers, slapped it onto his right forearm, and taken aim. Toxicity 7, he muttered, squeezing his hand into a tight fist. A small dart launched from a thin barrel built into the bracer and buried itself in the hook's chest. The mighty alien went rigid as a powerful electrical charge surged through him. He convulsed for several seconds and then dropped to the ground, twitching slightly from the after effects. Theron considered what to do with the immobilized but still conscious hook as he quickly gathered his gear. It wouldn't take long for the effects of the electrical blast to wear off, but for the next few minutes the hook was basically helpless. Theron wasn't about to execute a helpless opponent, but he wasn't above interrogating him. Toxicity too, 
he whispered, firing another dart into the hook's thigh from point-blank range. He waited 30 seconds for the mind-clouding drug to take effect before he started asking questions. How did you spot me? he asked. You said you were trained. By whom? The hook shook his head groggily, struggling to resist the chemicals coursing through his system. In a few minutes, they would render him unconscious. Theron needed to get answers before that happened. Hey! Theron snapped, slapping the hook's meaty cheek. Who trained you? Republic SIS, the hook mumbled. Republic SIS, Theron repeated, his mind struggling to accept what he'd just heard. Covert surveillance, the groggy hook confirmed, his tongue loosened by Theron's truth serum. Watching Mobile, part of Operation Transom. S.I.S. has eyes on Morbo. No wonder the director knew I was here. Theron had never heard of Transom, but that wasn't unusual. S.I.S. had ongoing missions all across the galaxy, and only the director and the agents involved would be aware of the details. Just my luck to stumble into an active S.I.S. mission. What are you going to do with me? The hook asked slurring his words and struggling to keep his eyes open as sleep slowly dragged him down. Relax, big guy, Theron said. We're on the same side. The director had ordered Theron off Nar Shaddaa. Obviously, he was worried about him interfering with Transom, whatever it might be. But Tefeth's life was at stake, and Theron wasn't about to abandon her, even if it meant defying a direct order. The hook began to snore loudly, ending any hope Theron had of asking him for more details about Operation Transom. It has to be in the early stages, Theron reasoned. They're still just observing the target. If I get in and out quickly, it shouldn't have any significant impact on the mission. He knew the director would never buy that argument as justification for what he was about to do, but it was always easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Grabbing hold of the hook's arms, he dragged the sleeping alien into a corner of the alley, hiding him behind several trash bins. He'd wake up in a couple of hours with a pounding headache, but otherwise unharmed. Plenty of time for Theron to meet with Morbo and bargain for Tevith's life. He set off down the alley at a brisk trot, trying not to think about the fact that he was putting his entire career in jeopardy. Theron's lips started to swell from the blow from the hook's knee. He felt like he'd been smashed with a swoop rider's helmet. He had a few small med kits tucked into his belt, but it didn't seem worth the effort. The wound was painful, but not debilitating. Instead, he ran through a simple series of mental exercises Nagani Zhou had taught him to soothe the body and mind. It was a trick the Jedi used to help them draw on the Force to heal themselves but Theron had found that there were benefits even for someone like him. He acknowledged the pain in his lip, embraced it, then let it slip away from his consciousness. Almost instantly the pain faded, though the damage remained. Good enough until the mission was over, and he could get a Medroid to fix him up properly. Winding his way through the back alleys without further incident, he emerged in the corner of a small square in the red light district. There were fewer people here than in the promenade, but it was crowded enough that Theron kept an eye peeled for pickpockets as he crossed the square. A trio of teens on swoop bikes buzzed the crowd, flying the colors of one of the local street games. They laughed at the angry shouts of the pedestrians, circling tauntingly just above their heads before zooming off to disappear around the corner. Theron paid them little heed as he approached his destination. A squat, two-story building on the other side of the square owned by Morbo the Hutt, one of the moon's many local crime lords. In the front of the building was a small casino bar called Morbo's Paradise. In the back was a warehouse for storing whatever illegal goods the Hutt was trafficking, along with Morbo's private office. The plan was simple. Go into the club, slip a hefty handful of credits to the manager, and ask for a meeting with Morbo. Once inside... Theron would use his powers of persuasion, 
and the Hut's greed and self-interest to convince Morbo to call off the hit on Tefet and her crew. Quick, clean, and simple wasn't Theron's usual style, but he wasn't in the mood for any surprises. The club was more crowded than usual. Probably irrelevant, but Theron couldn't help but notice. After the ambush in the alley, his senses were on high alert. He quickly scanned the club for anyone who seemed out of place. If SIS had assigned the Hook to keep an eye on Morbo, there could be other agents on the case. He didn't see anyone who specifically grabbed his attention, but he did notice something else unusual. Most of the patrons weren't gambling. They sipped drinks, sitting alone or in pairs at tables and at the bar, as if waiting for something. A few openly studied him as he strode toward Rare's Shallot, the Nemordian manager of the club, who was standing in a corner near the back. Behind him, a pair of Gamorian bouncers stood on either side of a door leading to the rooms in the back of the club. Early in his preliminary investigations, Theron had learned that Rare's was Morbo's second in command. The hut called the shots. The Nemordian was in charge of carrying out his orders. Theron had also learned that Rares was dumb enough to take cuts for himself when Morbo wasn't looking, but smart enough to keep the grifts small and unnoticeable. Eager at this point to get the mission over with, Theron skipped all pretense. I need to speak to Morbo. Forget it. Go wait with the others. The reply caught Theron off guard. He'd expected Rares to say something like, Nobody speaks to Morbo. Talk to me and I'll pass it along. Or maybe, what's in it for me? The unexpected response stoked Theron's already burning curiosity. He struggled to stay on script. Get me in to see your boss and I'll make it worth your while. The Nymoidian held him in a withering gaze. Mobo runs a clean auction. No sneak peeks at the merchandise. Go sit down before this gets ugly. The Gamorians turned to him. Their porcine snouts curled in anticipation revealing their protruding tusks. Can't blame a guy for trying, Theron said with a shrug as the pieces clicked into place. The extra patrons of the club weren't gambling because they were here looking to buy. Theron hadn't heard anything about an auction in the three days he'd been on Narshadah. It must have been set up weeks ago. Potential buyers already contacted long before he arrived, and Theron could think of only one reason for all the secrecy. Morbo's auctioning off captured Republic POWs. Slavery was legal in the Sith Empire and on Hut-controlled worlds. The Republic generally turned a blind eye to the Hut slave trade, but there was one notable exception. Any Hut who auctioned off captured Republic soldiers inevitably became a target of covert Republic retaliation. Privateers seizing cargo in transit. Anonymous vandals targeting the Hut's holdings at warehouses on various planets. Customs officials on Core Worlds conducting numerous random inspections on arriving shipments from the Hut's business partners. Selling POWs into slavery was bad business, and most Huts avoided it. But Morbo was greedy, even for his notoriously avaricious species, and a secret auction of Republic prisoners was right up his alley. Aware that Rares was still watching him, Theron made his way over to an empty table near the entrance and sat down. The Gamorian bouncers eyed his retreat, snout sagging in disappointment at the lost chance to pummel a seemingly helpless customer. He settled into his seat and mulled over his options. Everyone probably assumed he represented a buyer wishing to remain anonymous, and he'd have to play along if he didn't want to raise suspicion. He could wait out the auction, toss out a few lowball bids to play his part, then try to meet with Morbo after to bargain for Tefet's life. That would be the most prudent course of action. But the idea of sitting idly by while his fellow soldiers were auctioned off like chattel galled Theron. What if I'm not the only one not willing to just let this happen? Is this what Operation Transom is about? Then again, if SIS had learned about Morbo's secret auction, the director could have thrown together a special op to try to liberate their fellow soldiers. And I might have just messed the whole thing up by taking out Operation Transom's point, man. Theron's first instinct was to do whatever it took to free the Republic prisoners. If he screwed up the mission, he should be the one to fix it. On the other hand, if Transom was still on, the last thing Theron wanted was to get in the way. 
there was no way to know which was the right call. Not without more information. Unfortunately, contacting SIS wasn't an option. Like all the casinos in the Red Light District, Morbo's club was equipped with top-of-the-line security equipment. Any incoming or outgoing transmissions in a three-block radius would be intercepted and analyzed. A standard precaution to prevent cheaters from communicating with a partner outside the casino who could be using a computer to calculate the odds on the games. Theron surveyed the crowd, searching again for some sign that SIS had another agent in place posing as a buyer. But nobody stood out from the crowd. Of course. If they did, the mission would be blown. Gotta make the call. Sit tight, or get on your feet and get moving. For Theron, it wasn't hard to reach decision. Rares and the other patrons had shifted their focus from him to other new arrivals, making it easy for him to get up and slip outside without attracting attention. In front of the club, he cast a quick glance to make sure nobody was watching, then casually wandered into the side alley and made for the warehouse built onto the back. He didn't need to see inside to picture the scene. Armed guards watching over unfortunate prisoners about to be auctioned off. There was a single Durasteel door at the back, a pair of blacked-out windows one story up. He dismissed the door. Taking the obvious entrance would give the guards time to react. It was unlikely the windows were alarmed or protected by a security field. The difficulty in getting to them was defense enough. He considered scaling the wall to get to the windows, but he'd be exposed if any of the guards wandered out into the back alley. Better to come at them from above, where he was less likely to get noticed. Theron wandered back out to the front of the club and merged with the flow of pedestrians wandering the square. He walked halfway down the block, past three buildings on the same side of the street, then paused at the entrance of a narrow back lane next to a three-story building. Judging from the signage, it was a combination pawn shop and dance hall. He checked to see if anyone was watching. The three hoodlums on swoop bikes he'd seen earlier streaked overhead again, coming in so low the pedestrians had to duck to avoid getting clipped. They whooped and yelled before climbing safely out of reach and accelerating into the distance. Theron took advantage of the distraction and ducked into the alley, sauntering to the back of the building. He pulled his climbing gloves from where they had been tucked in at the rear of his belt, tugged them over his hands, flexed his fingers. He tested the grip on the side of the building. A million needle-like nanofibers woven into the fabric of the gloves caught on the invisible imperfections of the seemingly smooth surface, giving him purchase. Moving with the simian dexterity of a Kashyyyk tack, he scampered up the side of the pawn shop's exterior wall and onto the roof. He didn't pause to catch his breath, taking three quick steps and leaping across the narrow alley separating the pawn shop from the two-story building beside it. He landed softly, tucking into a roll to absorb the impact. The alley before the next building over was slightly wider, and he once again ran across the roof and jumped across without any hesitation. On the rooftop of the building adjacent to Morbo's club, he paused and contemplated the nearly ten-meter gap between them. You've made longer jumps before, and if you fall, you've survived worse. Gathering himself, he sprinted toward the edge. Half a step before he jumped, the three joyriding teens whizzed down the alley in front of him on their swoops, unaware Theron was leaping across the rooftops just above them. Distracted, Theron stumbled, his boots slipping on the uneven surface of the roof as he planted his foot for his final leap. His body's muscle memory reacted instinctively to the sudden loss of balance and momentum by throwing itself forward to offset its shifting center of gravity. Theron was still able to push off the ledge. Halfway across the gap, he realized he wasn't going to make it. He threw his left arm out in a desperate attempt to snag the ledge. The fingertips of his climbing glove grazed against the surface, the nanofibers latching onto the permacrete half a meter below the roof. His plunge came to an abrupt and jarring halt, nearly wrenching his left shoulder from its socket. And his body twisted so hard, he slammed into the building. He grunted in pain as the wind got knocked from his lungs. Supported by a single aching limb, he dangled in the breeze and struggled to catch his breath. After several seconds, Theron had recovered enough to reach up and slap his right palm against the building. 
allowing his other arm to bear some of his weight. Ignoring the protest of his left shoulder socket, he hauled himself up and over the ledge and lay on his stomach atop the roof of Morbo's club. Rising to his feet, he tested his shoulder with a quick range of motions. The pain made him grit his teeth, but nothing seemed seriously damaged. At the same time, Theron listened for any sound indicating that his inelegant arrival had attracted the attention of someone inside the club. Hearing nothing but the noise of the swoop-riding teens fading away into the distance, he dropped into a crouch and scuttled along the rooftop to the edge of the rear wall. From his belt, he pulled out a length of thin, flexible wire tipped with a small precision laser cutter and a miniature cam. Theron flicked the cam on, and the image that fed into its lens was transmitted to a heads-up display embedded in the cybernetic implant in his left eye. Using the cam's relayed image to guide his hand, he carefully lowered the wire over the edge until it was even with the top left corner of one of the blacked-out windows. With a series of whispered commands, Theron cycled the cam through the visible, infrared, and ultraviolet spectrums, searching the various wavelengths for the faint, shimmering glow that would indicate the presence of some type of security field protecting the windows. He wasn't surprised to find the windows were clean. Even Morbo couldn't afford to invest in expensive electronic security fields on every possible point of access. Theron twisted the base of the wire, and the laser activated, melting a tiny hole in the corner of the glass and allowing him to work the cam through for a look inside the warehouse. Scattered crates and shipping containers. In the back corner, four Cathar were huddled together on the floor. Three males and one female. The prisoners had their hands clasped behind their backs, their heads held high even though their feline features were set in grim resignation. A pair of armed guards, both humans, stood watch over them, their slouched stances and disinterested expressions revealing their boredom as they waited for Morbo to start the auction. Moving the laser in slow circles, Theron melted the circumference of the hole in the window until it was large enough for him to reach his hand through but hopefully still small enough to escape attention. He retracted the wire, stored it safely in his belt, then carefully lowered himself over the edge until his feet rested on the windowsill. Using the climbing glove of his left hand to help maintain his balance, he peered through the hole, pinpointing the location of each guard with the automated targeting implant in his left eye. He shifted so he could slip his right hand through the hole in the glass. Though firing blind, his cybernetic augmentations kept him locked onto his targets as he whispered, Toxicity 6, and launched the last two darts from his bracer. When he peeked back through the hole in the window, he saw that both guards were down and out. The captives on the ground looked around with a confused mixture of fear and hope. Knowing it was unlikely anyone in the casino at the front of the club would hear, Theron turned his head to the side and punched away the rest of the glass with the ball of his fist. Moving quickly, he squeezed through the window frame and dropped to the ground below, tucking and rolling to absorb the impact. He sprang to his feet and raised a finger to his lips. The female Cathar, the senior-ranking member of the group, based on her sergeant stripes, nodded curtly in understanding. Theron rifled through the pockets of the unconscious guards, finding a small key on the second. Moments later, the Cathar were free of their restraints and on their feet. Theron moved to the exit on the far side of the warehouse floor. He made sure the door to the alley wasn't locked and that opening it wouldn't trigger any alarms as the Cathar rubbed their wrists to restore circulation. Who are you? The female Cathar asked. Republic SIS, Theron said. We look after our own. That door leads to the back alley, he added, pointing to the exit. Can you make it from here? The Cathar nodded as she bent down and retrieved the blaster rifle from the guard at her feet. One of her companions snatched another blaster from the second guard. Thank you, she said, before she and the others sped off toward freedom. Once the Cathar were safely away, he searched the rest of the warehouse until he located the door that led to the private offices between the warehouse in the back of the building and the casino club out front. Theron opened the door carefully, peering through the doorway to discover that the corridor was empty. 
He guessed Morbo's thugs were probably out front, keeping an eye on the prospective buyers waiting for the auction. The corridor led off in two directions. Standing still, Theron heard the unmistakable murmur of a crowded bar coming from off to his right, so he turned and headed the opposite way. He didn't have to go far before he found what he was looking for. A thick, beaded curtain hung across an archway at the end of the hall. Theron stepped through and came face to face with the club's owner. Morbo's private office was a testament to the gluttony, vanity, and avarice of his species. The crime lord's bulk was draped over a luxurious, custom-made couch, and the rest of the room was cluttered with opulent gold statues, gaudy paintings, and other garish objets d'art fashioned in the crime lord's own image. Several female Twilic servants scurried about the room with downcast eyes as they whisked away the remains of what appeared to be a lavish and exotic feast for a dozen people, but which Theron realized was merely the hut's pre-auction meal. Morbo stared at him with unmistakable disdain. He clearly didn't see Theron as a threat, though his servants had all retreated and were cowering in the far corners of the room. I told Reyes no visitors before the auction, he growled in Hatties. His voice so deep, Theron could feel it trembling through the floor and up into his feet. Next auction, I should put that useless Nymordia up for sale. Like all SIS agents, Theron was fluent in Hatties. But the language put a strain on human vocal cords, so he stuck with basic for his reply. I'm not here for the auction. No? Then come back later. Morbo's long, thick tongue darted out to lick away a spot of grease rolling down the jowls of his chin. I have to show my merchandise in ten minutes. Theron didn't think it was prudent to mention that, because of him, the auction had been postponed indefinitely. I'll be quick, great and mighty Morbo. What I have to say could be very profitable for you. The combination of stroking the hut's ego and dropping the magic P-word grabbed Morbo's full attention. Speak. It better be worth my time. I know about the hit on the members of the old Tian Brotherhood, Theron said, jumping straight to the point. Morbo laughed, slapping his meaty hands against the rolls of fat covering his chest. <laughs> You're too late. I hired someone else for that job. I'm not bidding for the contract. I want you to call it off. Impossible. The Brotherhood smuggled spice through my territory without paying my commission. You should know better. I'm not with the Brotherhood, Theron assured him. I represent other interests. Then why do you care? This isn't a smart business move, Theron continued evading the question as his mind raced to come up with a convincing argument that wouldn't reveal who he was or whom he worked for. Going to war with the Brotherhood could be expensive, but call off the hit and I'll find the credits to cover your commission. This isn't about credits. Since Adania took over, the old Tian Brotherhood has been expanding, looking for new territory. I need to send her a message. Nobody messes with Morbo. Zidania didn't authorize this mission. The smugglers are working freelance. And she won't care if I eliminate them. One of them works for me, Theron lied. If you hurt her, I'll care. Her? Morbo said with a cunning smile. You mean the Twi'lek? Theron didn't see much point in trying to deny it. He nodded. You say she works for you? Morbo continued, his tail twitching slightly. But who are you exactly? Someone who wants to see Zidania fail, Theron lied. I've worked hard to get my contact close to her. If you don't call off this hit, I have to start over. 
Morbo chuckled, the rolls of fat quivering with delight. Clearly, he relished the idea of a mole inside someone else's criminal organization. His eyes narrowed as he tried to assemble the random bits of truth and fiction from Theron's story together into a single theory. <laughs> you represent a rival looking to take the Xanias place? Another gang looking to bring a brotherhood down? Law enforcement from the tea in the Germany? I really can't say. It doesn't matter anyway, Morbo said with a regretful sigh. Your friends are ready to leave, loading the spice onto the ship. My people are already headed to the spaceport. You're too late. Theron swore in old high gamerees as he spun on his heel and darted back into the hall. As he ran toward the door leading back to the warehouse, he heard angry shouts of surprise coming from the other side. Someone had found the downed guards. He continued past the warehouse door, his legs chewing up the ground in long, quick strides as he continued down the hall and burst through the door leading into the club. The Gamorrean bouncers on either side were too surprised to try to stop him. Their job was to keep people from going into the back, not stop someone coming out. Theron didn't look back as he raced out the door and into the street, heading for the spaceport. Man, can we just take a second? That first part was completely insane. Who would have thought that the future head honcho of the Jedi would have a kiddo? She's not quite the Grandmaster yet, but still, it's wild. And let's chat about that opener. Bam, right into a cave birth scene. 100% unexpected. And then discovering that Theron, her son, grew up not being able to use the Force. Something that you would never think could happen. But despite him not having any Force mojo, he still becomes a big deal in the war. Mind-blowing. And you know what else is crazy? It's time for this episode's quote. Drumroll, please. This gem comes to us straight from Drew Carverson, the author of this amazing story. He said, Ignite your spirit, for within you lies the power to shape destinies and overcome the darkest of forces. So what does that mean, to ignite your spirit? Well, think of it like setting your inner fire ablaze. It means connecting with your passions, dreams, and everything that makes you awesome. Finding what truly excites you and pursuing it with all of your heart. Sure, life could throw you a curveball, but fear not. You've got the strength to conquer anything. Believe in yourself and embrace your strengths, talents, and passions. Let them guide you toward your goals and don't be afraid to take risks. Learn from your mistakes along the way. Challenges are just opportunities for growth. Enjoy the adventure of life, the ups, the downs, and everything in between. you got all that it takes to shine brightly and leave your mark on this world. So go for it. And that's about all I have for this episode. I hope you enjoyed part one of Annihilation. And I hope you will join me for part two in a few days. Until then, may the Force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and was distributed by Sway Cast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic Annihilation was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.